Good morning again. Welcome if you're joining us via the live stream. Um, our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Romans. As we carry on through this book, we are in the last part of Romans chapter 4 this morning. What we've seen so far is this big argument, logical argument that Paul is making about how does salvation work? How is it that we are saved? What did Jesus do? How does all of this come together? And in previous weeks, we've, we've seen that we're not saved by works, nor are we saved by, by circumcision or any sort of outward act that we, we have. No outward conformity will save us. And now Paul is going to take up the law. Can the law save us? And really, this is a, a continuation of our passage from last week. Uh, Paul carries on with this case study of Abraham. The faith of Abraham, and what we're going to see is that this faith is one that saves Abraham, but it's also one that is an example for us. One of the questions we'll ask this morning is, what does a life of faith look like? What does it actually look like to have faith in, in God? And Scripture will give us an example of that. And so would you stand this morning for the reading of God's, God's Word? We'll begin reading Romans chapter 4, verse 13, through the end of the chapter. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this truth. Lord, would you guide us as we study it? Would you give us insight into your truth that we might see some of this faith reflected in our own lives, that we would grow strong in our faith as Abraham did. Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning, that they would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when was the last time you were, you were lost? I'm not talking about just sort of navigating around and Google Maps brought you somewhere and you're, you're kind of confused, but, but honestly lost. Maybe you were on a, a hike somewhere and you got lost. I remember this happening to me a uh, number of years ago. I was up in Canada. We were doing a hike in the Canadian Rockies, and a group of friends, and me and one friend decided we're going to take a shortcut. 
Um, we, we figured, we looked at the topography, we looked at a map a little bit, and we said, if we cut this way, we can get up to the lake before everybody else, it'll be great. And so we went off on this shortcut. And you probably know what's going to happen. We got lost. It didn't take more than probably 10, 15 minutes off the trail that suddenly we realized we don't, nothing's really operating the way we thought it was going to be. And we were, we were lost. And what do people do when they're lost? I read an article this week that reminded me of this story. When people are lost, what they do is they act randomly. You start just wandering, trying to find something that looks familiar. And what happens when you start wandering randomly? You get more lost. And that's more or less what happened to my friend and I. Fortunately, we wandered a little bit and we, we got back to where we were supposed to be. But what is, it, what is it like to be lost? And obviously, we're not talking about geographically lost here. We're talking about spiritually lost. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, we, you know we use that sort of language to describe someone who doesn't know Jesus. Spiritually lost, someone who is still in their sins that hasn't received forgiveness. And this passage will talk about you, if that's you this morning, being spiritually lost. But what about us who maybe know Jesus, have, have faith in Jesus? Sometimes we still have a sort of maybe some spiritual lostness. Not that we're not saved, but we look at our, our, our lives and we say, how do I grow up in the faith? What, what are the next steps that I can take? How does this Christian life work? How is it that I can gain this faith by grace and then also grow up in it? Maybe you look at this faith of Abraham and you say, how could I ever be like Abraham? This sort of stalwart faith, this resolute, unflappable faith that says things like no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. How can we have faith like that? So that's what we'll look at this morning. Two, two, two points this morning. We're going to look at gaining the promise by faith, but then also growing in the life of faith. So how does this faith begin? Well, let's look at this in verse 13. Paul carries on from where he has just been in the previous verses. In verse 13, he says, For, so he's building this argument, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Comes out right there and says it. Your your adherence to the law, your following of the law isn't going to save you. It's not. What saves you? The righteousness of of faith. The righteousness of faith, that is what is going to save you. That is how we gain the promise that is talked about here. It's, it's by faith. This is what Paul said back in Romans 1. If you remember that, he's, he talks in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he gives a thesis statement of what the gospel is. It says, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Righteousness that God, from God that is by faith, from first to last, from faith for faith. That is the power of God, this gospel that is given. It is that we are saved by faith alone, not by the law. And that is good news for us. That is how we gain this this promise. But maybe to set set the tone here, we're talking about Abraham. We're talking about how he had faith, that the the law was there. How how do all these pieces fit together in Paul's Paul's argument? Maybe begin with this question. When, When was the law given? It's talking about the Mosaic law here. If you've read Galatians recently, you know that in Galatians 3 and verse 17, Paul says that that Abraham didn't have the law. In fact, 430 years after Abraham comes, then what happens? Then we get the law. So Abraham couldn't be saved by the the law. The law wasn't even even there. The Mosaic law wasn't even there for him to, to follow. 
And Paul offers another argument here in verse 14. It says this, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is, is void. Then, then what, what, is, what is going on here? What's this promise? Well, this promise is the promise that was made back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. The promise that he would be the, the blessing to the nations, that he would be the father of many nations as his promise was, was given to him. This wonderful promise that it, it expands so far even here that he would be heir of the world. This is a promise that isn't just about Abraham and what he gets, but it's about all that God is, is doing. All of us share in this promise, it'll say later in verse 16. This promise takes fruit and flourishes ultimately in, in the gospel. The gospel that he is talking about here, this is the, the promise. And what was that promise way back when? It said that he would be the heir, not just of one nation, but of, of many nations. And that's what Paul says in, in verse 14. If there are other people coming in, if the Gentiles are to come in, it is not the adherent of the law, the Jews, who are to be heirs, but it's, it's everyone. And so we cannot be saved by, by the law. That's how he begins working his, his argument here. Many people are being brought in. The trajectory is bigger than just this, so we're not saved by, by the law. And then in verse 15, he picks up a, a familiar argument. Again, why we're not saved by the law. It says this, for the law brings wrath. If we've seen anything in the book of Romans so far, we should kind of get this point that the law brings wrath. What does that mean? Well, the law exposes our sin. It exposes us that we are sinners in need of God's grace, that we cannot attain salvation. It exposes and even at times exacerbates, exacerbates our sin. We are sinners through and through, and Paul is saying here that the law brings wrath, the wrath of God against sin. That's what the law does. I don't know if you've ever taken one of those tests, I'm sure you all have, where there's you know, the little circles that you're coloring in, the little bubbles with your number two pencil. I don't know if you ever graded one of those tests, like a standardized test. You take the answer key and you sort of put it on top, and what happens? that exposes all the, the incorrectness, in our case, the sin that is in there. That's what the law does. It, it brings wrath. It exposes our sin. It shows that we could never save ourselves. If you disbelieve that, you need to, to walk through Romans, maybe again, read this and pray through it and really see that, that what the scripture is doing is it's showing that, that we don't measure up to what God is asking us that this law cannot save us. Paul illustrates this in this last line of verse 15 where he says, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, it's not saying that, that somehow if there's no law, we're just free to do what we want. The word transgressions there is a very sort of pointed word. It means sort of deliberate moving away from what you were called to do, a purposeful action, a trespass, moving against what has been asked. Think of it this way. On 46, there's a piece of property that I've, I've driven by frequently and recently saw that they put up a, a no trespassing sign. Now, was it against the law to trespass there before that sign was there? Yeah, it was. It was. But what Paul is saying here is now that that no trespassing sign, as it were, has been posted, we're almost doubly guilty of this, this sin. The law exposes our sin and brings brings wrath. And this is not new territory for us. It's not new territory for God's people. They knew the track record of, of their, their um, fathers in the faith, Abraham afterwards, of people not following God's law, of the law exposing the sin that was there. 
So if this isn't how we're saved, if it's not through the law, then what is it? Verse 16 comes in with this hopeful message, sometimes called almost the the John 3.16 of Paul, where he says this, that is why it depends on faith. That is why it depends on faith. The law cannot save you, so it depends on faith. In order that the promise, this wonderful promise that is given to Abraham and takes fruition now in this book, may rest on grace and be guaranteed That's strong language. Guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. It's not saying there that the adherent of the law is earning his way, but the adherent of the law is the Jewish person who, like Abraham, has expressed faith, that together we are coming and having faith in God. This is how Paul reads the Old Testament. This is this picture of the Father of God, of God the Father, who calls us saves us as individuals, as this group of people that he's calling out, saved by faith. This is how we are saved. Maybe we need to hit pause here for a moment. It's easy to sort of maybe work through this, pull some dots together, and yet maybe this can sound pretty abstract to you. Maybe you're uh, new to the church, new to faith, coming back to the church after a while, and, and it's, why are we talking about Abraham? How does this all fit together? What, what this is saying is that this is our story of salvation, that God is not just sort of suddenly here doing something, but God has been faithfully working for our salvation from Abraham, from the beginning. He has worked for our salvation. He has this plan that we are saved by faith, resting upon grace, that this is our story that we are brought into, that this is how we are saved. And it is a wonderful invitation to be part of what God is is doing. Faith credits us our righteousness. That was, those are the words that God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 6, that he was credited righteousness by his faith. That's the same for you and I. Our, our what should be credited to us is just our sin, and yet it's the righteousness that we get. Christ's righteousness that is given to us, imputed to us. This is what is offered. Again, this isn't, this isn't abstract. Maybe, you've, uh, maybe this would be helpful if I shared maybe a little bit of my, my story. I, I grew up in a Christian home, born into a family that loved God, knew the gospel for, for generations, and I heard God's truth. At a young age, about age five, I knew I was a sinner. I expressed saving faith in Christ. I prayed a prayer, and and God saved me in that moment. I I don't doubt that at all. I was saved by grace. And yet, I didn't quite see the beauty of what God had offered me. I didn't see the the beauty of that. It wasn't until until later, maybe a, a decade or more later, that actually reading through the book of Romans, studying the book of Romans, I saw the gospel as God gave it to us, the beauty that I'm no longer trying to earn God's favor by the law. See, I was still, in a sense, spiritually lost in the sense that my, my favor, the favor of God, I thought I still had to, had to maintain or earn somehow through law-keeping. It's not what Paul is saying here. It says the law can't save you. The law brings wrath. Yes, the law is good. Yes, the law is our, our instruction. Yes, it's our, our schoolmaster, something that is of great value, and, and we follow it as our hearts are changed, but we don't ever earn God's favor through the law. John Newton, I'm sure many of you know, the author of Amazing Grace, that wonderful hymn we sing, and also a former slave captain, or a slave ship captain. He came to know this grace, this gospel, and later in his life, in a letter to a friend, he said this, 
Most of our complaints are owning to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. The remainder of a legal spirit. I think many of us read Romans, we get the gospel, we might have expressed faith, saving faith in Christ, but we don't really realize that we're holding on to a legal spirit, a heart that is still bent on saying, I need to do this law in order for God to be pleased with me. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. The law is important. Paul will get into that in Romans 6, where we don't sin so grace may abound. No, we follow God's, God's law, but we don't earn God's favor. Maybe some of, the, some of us need to, to hear this. I think culturally we're in a moment where it's really easy to be angry, impatient. Um, I read something that said our, our surge capacity is, is depleted. We're so used to everything being controversial and everything that we just, at the drop of a hat, get angry. And, and maybe you've seen this anger, criticalness, impatience in yourself, and, and sometimes you say, am I making any, any progress in this Christian life? Is there anything to, to hope for? And, and we can move from that, that moment, which is good and convicting, to, to, to work out our salvation to places that say, I've got to re-earn God's favor. The gospel says that God's favor is for you because you're saved by faith and it rests not on the law but on grace. It rests on grace. Some of us might be sort of habitually operate like our behavior can somehow leverage God's favor. That's how a lot of us operate. Because I know that's often how I am tempted to operate, that somehow what I can do will leverage God's favor towards me. It's not the gospel. God's favor is is for you because of his son, Jesus. That is where it rests. Some of us might be playing the wrong game or attending the wrong class. Think of this. All the classmates are are still in the classroom, and the bell is released. We're, We're free to go, go to recess, and we're still in that classroom trying to earn favor somehow. So how do, we, how do we move out of this? Well, in part, it comes back to looking at the law and saying, the law exposes my sin. I can never please God. And then in that moment, running to verse 16 here and saying that we may rest upon his grace, that we would actually rest there, that we would be saturated by his, his grace, his gospel message, so that when we speak, when we schedule, when we make plans for the future, that the gospel would, would permeate all of that the love that he has shown for us in giving us this gift of faith. Maybe we can illustrate it this way. Remember last week, what did ERCOT tell us to do? Remember the edict came down? Drop your thermostats to 78 degrees during the day and 82 at night. I don't know if you, you did that or not, but we were, that was the information that was, was given to us. I know I saw the, the shirts and, and the memes that said, come and take it with the, the thermostat on there, which is humorous for sure. But... So, so let's say you did that. Let's say you dropped your thermostat and you're sweltering in your house at 82 degrees at night, not sleeping. And then after the four or five days went past and the, the edict was, was lifted and the all clear was given, you kept your thermostat at 82 degrees. Wouldn't that be foolish? Some of us, I think, live the Christian life that way where the gospel message says, God's favor is is for you, and we haven't opened the vents, as it were, and let the cool air come through. This is what we're invited to. Yes, our actions matter. Yes, we we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul calls us to, but but never to earn God's favor. The cool breeze of the gospel is, is here for us. It's offered 
to us. So if this is what is offered, how do we, how do we grow up in this, in this faith? Well, all of it, this whole passage turns on verse 17. This wonderful, passage, or wonderful verse here that says that it is God who makes things that are dead as if they were alive, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Maybe this reminds you of God's creative power, his out-of-nothing creation. That's really what it's, it's highlighting, that God is that powerful, but not just in his creation, but, but now in our, in our justification. We're, we're justified out of nothing, nothing that we do. Out of nothing, he calls us into existence. These people of Abraham who have faith in God, he calls us out. That is the gain that we have, the gain in which we receive our faith. And now we're, we're called to, to grow up in it. The rest of this passage is really an example of someone living out this faith. Now, one, one question maybe as you read this, maybe sometimes you read a passage like this, and it's encouraging on the one note as you see this beautiful picture of faith, but then there's this part of you that says, but Abraham's faith, that's, that's like top shelf kind of faith. I, I'm, I'm down here. I, I can't get up there. How do, how do we work through that? Do I have to have faith like Abraham in order to be saved? I don't think that's what this passage is, is saying. It's not saying that somehow this wonderful faith he exhibits here needs to be exactly the same in our life or we're not saved. No, it's faith as we saw from the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, a few weeks ago. It's placing our trust in Jesus and trusting him alone for our salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. That's what saves you. And yet we're called to, to follow this example of Abraham, who in hope believed against hope. That's a beautiful little turn of phrase. In hope, he believed against hope. In hope in God, he believed against all human hope that God's promise would still be fulfilled. And, and think about Abraham. Now, this passage gives us a picture of sort of the, the final picture, if you will, of his faith, this tested faith that has now grown in its strength. But, but what happened when, when God gave the promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12? What did he go do right after that? Right? He goes into Egypt and he passes off his wife as his sister because he's afraid. And a few chapters later, we see him coming to God in Genesis 15 and saying, God, it's, I don't have a son yet. How is this promise going to come about? I don't have a son. And God says, no, I, I will give you this son. More than stars in the sky, sand of the seas, he sort of reiterates this promise to Abraham. And then what does Abraham do in the next chapter? Well, he kind of gets creative. And he tries to come up with another way to have a child through his wife's servant. And God says, no, that's not going to be your heir. And this goes on. And finally, we see the promise fulfilled. Isaac comes. This child of laughter is given. And yet, yet what happens after that? Abraham's faith is tested. Genesis 22 comes. And that text is very clear where it says right at the beginning that this is a test. Abraham's faith would be tested. And as, as he goes, he's told to go and sacrifice his son, Isaac. And he goes, and, and as he goes through this story, we see these, this one phrase come up again and again in that passage. They went, both of them, together, almost building the tension as Abraham and Isaac walk. And as they're going up the mountain, what does Isaac say? Here's the wood, here's the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice. And that's what God does. And in that moment, we see that Abraham's faith has been, been tested. And Abraham's faith has grown up into this non, 
um, wavering faith, this strong faith that gave glory to God. This is the, this is the picture that we're offered here, that we are, are given not just sort of some unreasonable faith, but a reasonable faith that is tried and tested and grows up into something that gives glory to God. So we're called to as believers is to, to have a faith that grows, a faith that reflects all of what Abraham has here. Martin Luther, talking about faith, phrased it this way. He said that faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. A faith that God works in us and grows in us. A faith that, verse 20 says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Growing strong in the faith, verse 21, being fully convinced. And how did this happen? Well, it happened largely through trials. We'll see this even in the, later in Romans in chapter 5. It'll talk about how suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. Similarly, James 1 talks about this, where the testing of our faith is good for us and something that we delight in. Not because it's pleasant, not because everything Abraham went through is pleasant. Think about the real pain Abraham had of, of looking at his wife month after month and saying, we still don't have this child. The foolishness that people would have looked at him with, his neighbors who said he's 100 and he still thinks this God is going to give him a child. He's as good as dead. And, and literally, the, the text said that Sarah's womb was, was dead. And yet, he had faith. And so, so why did we have faith? Why did he have the, the faith that we know from Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. How did he grow up in this faith? Well, first, it is, it is a gift of God. We, we need to, to, to rest there too and say that God gives this. But there are also things that, that Abraham does. He considers that there is a greater reality than his circumstances. He considers that there is a greater reality than his circumstances. He looks at his world, and by all intents and purposes, he should have concluded that, yeah, this promise isn't coming. I'm 100. That ship has sailed. I'm done. But he knew that there was something greater. His faith didn't waver because he had, secondly, a, a God-word focus. His eyes were, were fixed on, on God. He, he says this in verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. His, his gaze, as it were, was fixed on God. He knew the God who had been faithful to him, had given him Isaac, and now provided even a sacrifice in place of Isaac. All of that, he knew that this was the God who was faithful, one who he could trust, even when he looked foolish. And, and, and trusting God can make you look foolish. It happened to Noah, remember? He's building this ark. People think he's foolish. Doing what God asks us to do, give our money, just an act of faith, that's, that's foolishness to the world. These are things that, that might look foolish, and yet, as we see who God is, his character, and we have this focus on God, we are asked and invited to this life that doesn't waver. and says, no, I, I'm fully convinced I know who my God is. I know his character. And Abraham took him at his word that God would do what he had promised in verse 21 and in 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this, isn't, this, this might sound really simplistic to you. Just sort of trust God, have a Godward focus, and, and you'll grow in faith. But, but you realize what Abraham is describing here is, is a simplicity that has walked through great complexity. He's walked through the complexity. He's walked through questions that you and I have walked through. But is God really going to be there for me? 
Is God really going to save me? Is God really going to provide for it? All the questions that you and I wrestle with, Abraham has, has asked. He's walked through that, and he now stands in this, this simple faith, if you will, simple in that it is focused solely on, on Jesus. In Proverbs 3, it asks us to, in all our ways, acknowledge God, and he will direct our paths. And it also asks us to, to not lean on our own understanding, What it's asking us to do in the reverse is to to lean on God, to entrust our weight on God so that we can be secure. Place our weight fully on God. And why can we place our weight fully on God? Because he can hold us up. As we entrust him with our weight, we can trust him. We can take sanctified risks, if you will, because God is the one who upholds us. God is the one who who is faithful. And, and what, what might this look like in our actual day-to-day life? Maybe just two, two examples. What would it look like if we actually gave a lot of our time to the growth of God's kingdom? What would it look like? Could, could, could we trust God to say, you know what, the next five years, I'm going to go serve on the mission field? Now, that's, like, that's big, big picture stuff, but, but, but why couldn't we? We could trust God, couldn't we? He's, he's the God of Abraham. Or, or maybe if we, we touch on our, on our finances, that's probably the, the place where our faith is tested most. What would it look like if we were increasingly generous? Not because money is needed, but because God can use money for his glory and his kingdom growth. What, what if we said, I, I can put my whole weight on God, so I'm going to give more than I ever thought I could give. I'm going to be incredibly generous. Because I could put my faith and my trust and my confidence on him. I can put my weight on him. That's the kind of radical faith that, that reflects the faith of Abraham. Now, do we need faith in that high degree to be saved? No, it's not talking about sort of earning it by these great risks or these great sort of sanctified actions that are, are of faith, because that same faith might look like stepping into that conversation yet again with a person that is just really difficult and saying, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you and I'm going to work through this relationship. I'm going to trust you. I know you're there. I know I can trust my weight in the trenches of parenting, grandparenting, whatever it might be, wherever, wherever you struggle, wherever those things are, and you say, I don't, this is just hard. It's in those moments where we can, like Abraham, put our faith in God because God is enough for us. Maybe the best part of this whole passage comes in verse 23. This whole picture of Abraham, it's not just about him. But the words, it was counted to him, we're not written for his sake alone. All those words all the way back in Genesis 15, we're not just for Abraham, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, that is God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Why is all of this true? Why can we entrust our weight on Jesus? Why can we move from being lost to, to found and growing in our faith? Well, it's because... Of Jesus. It's because of what he did that we are delivered, he was delivered up for our trespasses, paying for our sin, raised for our justification. That's why we can have this faith. That's why we can have this faith. I began talking about being lost. Now, the article I was reading about being lost that reminded me of my own encounter with, with being lost had this little antidote about a Texan from the 1980s who was concerned that kids were kind of wandering off and getting lost. And so he started this program in schools called the Hug-A-Tree Program. 
Now, the idea of the program was to teach kids that if you get lost and don't know where you are, don't wander randomly, but literally go hug a tree and, and stay put. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, sometimes when we walk through the Christian life, when we encounter trials, or we're just not sure who God is and stuff, our tendency is to do that sort of spiritually random activity. Go try this. Go think about this. Maybe I got to do this. But what Scripture is asking us to do here is, is to come back to these verses 23, 24, and 25 and say, no, it, it, it's here. I'm not going to be found somewhere out there. I'm found here. And the one who has counted us righteous, the one who has given us faith. And so as we go, I encourage you to, to know God as Abraham did. Consider God, consider his character, know him. And as you do, to place your weight on him, to trust him for the first time this morning, for the millionth time. But place your faith and trust in God, because underneath are the everlasting arms. Let's pray. Father, would you work in our lives a growing and deeper faith? Lord, if there are some here who hear these words and, and, and don't know you, but are spiritually lost and, and, and hear of your law and the wrath that it brings, that they would come and they would repent and they would hold on to Jesus for salvation. For those, Lord, who have, who have known the gospel, would you grow us up in our faith? That we would trust you more fully, more completely because of Jesus. We pray this in your name.